Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter, verses 31 through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning to the few of you gathered here in the sanctuary and to all of you tuning in from afar. I greet you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we turn our attention to the gospel, let us uh, first uh, pause in prayer. Shine within our hearts, O Lord and lover of humanity, the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds that we may understand your gospel. Instill in us a love for your word and your ways and turn our desires toward your good life. Christ, our God, you are the light of our souls and our bodies. We give you glory together with the Father and the Holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Jesus began to teach. I have to admit this week, I hardly made it past this very first phrase. Jesus began to teach. At this point, eight chapters into Mark, clearly Jesus has done quite enough teaching, both in word and action, to give the disciples, at least if not the crowds, some impression of his message and his identity. In fact, that's how this piece of the story begins. In the verses immediately before this, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you are the Messiah. Then Jesus began to teach. These words mark a transition in the story and even in its geographical direction. It is the beginning of a new journey, the very same that we take in Lent toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. 
And this is halfway through the gospel, but Mark is a patient storyteller. Some of you know that when I was around six years old, I had a retina detachment and lost all of my vision in my right eye. A few years later, I had a retina detachment in my left eye as well, but fortunately, all of the warning signs had been drilled into my brain, and so I was able to recognize what was happening, and they caught it in time. One of the surgeries to repair it involved putting a gas bubble, a temporary gas bubble, in my eye to help hold back the freshly buckled retina. Um, for the first uh, weeks, really, I would wear an eye patch, and for the first few days, uh, since, uh, as I said, I was entirely blind in the right eye already, I couldn't see anything at all. I made the best of it by listening to the old uh, familiar movies that my, my family owned, all of which, by the way, for some reason starred Tom Hanks. Uh, anyway, for the first few days, um, I, I could see nothing at all, but uh, after a few days, took off the patch and through the gas bubble I could see, but only uh, a blur of color and light. And gradually, over a few weeks, as the bubble shrank, I began to see more and more detail, shape, and clarity. Even though the disciples have seen and done much at this point, and even though uh, everything in Mark seems to happen immediately. The big picture unfolds gradually. When reading Mark, we are always on the way, a phrase he often uses. Up until this point, the disciples thought they were already on a journey. They thought they were already learning, and indeed they were. And they've followed Jesus all over countrysides and cities and seas. They've seen him feed and heal and still storms and rebuke evil. And they've left behind everything to do so. But maybe not everything. Despite Peter's unprecedented clarity in seeing and confessing Jesus as the Messiah, and despite, Mark says, that Jesus is now speaking quite openly, Peter immediately turns around and shows that he knows not what he says. As one commentator puts it, the disciples' way of coping with Jesus' talk about death is to cling to their personal hopes and values, unquote. Maybe these are what they have yet to leave behind. When told that suffering and sacrifice are on the horizon, it doesn't fit with Peter's story about the way things are and the way things should and will be, so he reverts and asserts assumptions that make him feel sure, secure, strong, like God is on his side. Rarely, by the way, does Peter just mean Peter. He often speaks and acts on behalf of all the disciples and by extension, the community of all those in all times and places who seek to follow Jesus. If, then, we are bold or humble enough to strap on Peter's sandals, we will find theological reasons to challenge and change our seemingly safe assumptions. When Mark says that Jesus rebuked Peter, it is the same word that is used when Jesus casts out demons. 
when he stills the chaos of the storm. So by clinging to his preconceptions, Peter has unwittingly placed himself on the side against the gospel, against healing and peace and justice. He resists setting things right by insisting they be as he desires them. So Jesus responds, get behind me, and turns them in a new direction toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. As I said, we relive this leg of the journey every year in Lent. And during the season of prayer and self-denial, I often try to turn my own attention and trust toward those who have devoted their entire lives to such practices, to monastic writers and communities. In fact, in uh, the rule of St. Benedict, which is the foundation of uh, much of monasticism, uh, he specifically says the life of the monk ought to be a continual Lent. So there is this obvious sense in which by the regular disciplines of solitude and fasting and poverty and prayer, the monastic life is a continual Lent. But there is also a particular vow that monks take in the Benedictine tradition that I think is even more illuminating. The first two are obedience and stability. The third is what is known as conversatio morum, or conversion of life, a continual and constant change of one's heart and ways. And when it comes to the actual season of Lent, Benedict does call for fasting and self-denial, but also for a peculiar addition, a book to be read straight through during Lent. He even sets aside what would have been time devoted to manual labor to prioritize reading and learning during Lent. This year we're inviting you to take something on for Lent, and maybe that is a personally challenging book to read straight through. But maybe more than that is the spirit beneath that, a willingness to listen, to learn, to change your mind, to be wrong, even to be rebuked. Maybe then we can be ready for Jesus to begin to teach us. Then, like Peter, we may be be able to hear more clearly what Jesus teaches next, calling the disciples and the crowds as well to himself and saying, if you would follow me, deny yourself. This is a command of Christ that we sometimes trivialize or even weaponize. First of all, self-denial does not refer to Uh, the everyday inconveniences that we sometimes sentimentally say, this is is just my cross to bear. Nor does self-denial mean uh, erasing your unique history and personality in order to become some kind of holy robot. Nor does self-denial mean any form of suppression or servitude under a domineering relationship or a social structure of dominance. Nor is self-denial 
uh, a sense of negative self-worth or crushing guilt. It is not self-hatred or self-rejection. For Peter, our immediate example in this, it seems that self-denial means abandoning plans and hopes of social and political success. That Peter refused to accept that suffering was essential to the story of the Messiah. So many of our own assumptions that cloud our vision start here. With the avoidance of suffering, whether our own or that of others. And so in this turn in the story, self-denial involves, as he has told Peter, getting behind Christ and setting aside my assumptions, my interests and instincts of self-preservation. Seeking to save my own life, as he later says. Self-denial is then a step toward acceptance which is why it is followed by the call to take up the cross. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a mouthful of a name, Teilhard, was a Jesuit priest and scientist who wrote extensively on the cosmic meaning of Christ and especially in relationship to evolutionary science. Teilhard saw the mystery of the cross woven into the very fabric of our ever-changing, ever-growing universe. In his words, everything that becomes suffers or sins. The truth about our position in this world is that in it, we are on a cross, unquote. A fundamental fact and force throughout the human and non-human world is the way in which struggle and death are utilized toward new life, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. For Teilhard, this reflects how Christ's cross gathers together the suffering of the whole universe, not trivializing the tragedy, but transfiguring it in his own death and life. And so also, those of us who are called to take up the same cross, once again in Teilhard's words, are called to make use of suffering, ghastly and revolting though it may be, unquote. To take up our cross and follow Christ means neither avoiding nor seeking suffering, neither condoning nor creating it, neither glorifying nor justifying suffering. Instead, we shoulder it. We feel its movement, its weight, and above all, we do not distance ourselves from others in order to protect ourselves from suffering. The cross means solidarity. It means letting ourselves become sympathetic with the suffering of the whole world, compassionate and acting to alleviate it. We simultaneously accept suffering and struggle against it, not to make it disappear, but to transform it into something new. 
And do you know what happens inside of a cocoon? It is a, a great, if a bit gruesome, example of the energies of death being transformed into new life. You see, the caterpillar doesn't simply uh, tuck itself in and safely grow wings until it's ready to emerge. It actually digests itself. Its body breaks down into a cellular soup no longer recognizable as a caterpillar at all. And all this is necessary in order to build up the new life of the butterfly or moth. Annie Dillard, in her book, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, tells a childhood story. One January, when she was 10 or 11, uh, a friend named Judy brought into school the cocoon of a polyphemus moth. And the teacher and the children uh, huddled excitedly around a book to see what this creature inside would look like when it emerged. It would be uh, this massive, furry, multicolored beauty with eye-like patterns on its wings which would spread half of a foot wide. And so they were passing the cocoon hand to hand, feeling the movement and weight and warmth of the thing inside. And as they did so, the time came for the moth to emerge. And so the teacher took the cocoon and placed it inside a mason jar. Dillard recounts, it was coming. There was no stopping it now, January or not. One end of the cocoon dampened and gradually frayed in a furious battle. The whole cocoon twisted and slapped around inside the bottom of the jar. The teacher fades, the classmates fade, I fade. I don't remember anything but that thing's struggle to be a moth or die trying. It emerged at last, a sodden crumple. It was a male. His long antennae were thickly plumed, as wide as his fat abdomen. His body was very thick, over an inch long and deeply furred. A gray, fur-like plush covered its head. A long, tan, fur-like hair hung from his wide thorax over his brown-furred, segmented abdomen. His multi-jointed legs, pale and powerful, were shaggy as a bear's. He stood still, but he breathed. He couldn't spread his wings. There was no room. The chemical that coated his wings like varnish, stiffening them permanently, dried and hardened his wings as they were. He was a monster in a mason jar. Dillard is interrupted in her description by recess. But when recess is over and the bell tolls to bring the children in, she notices off to the side that the teacher has set the moth free to crawl away with its crumpled, useless wings. And these are the last words of her haunting story. The polyphemus moth is still crawling down the driveway, crawling down the driveway hunched, crawling down the driveway on six furred feet forever. Even our best intentions and attempts to put life in a jar, to protect it, to control it and know what to expect, can have dire consequences. We cause ourselves immense 
hurt, when we insulate or run from the inevitable and painful growth of life. This is not merely a personal challenge. Jesus' words are, are intensely individual. Each of us must respond. But the way being chosen is the way of the cross that makes possible and real the kind of community that is the church. As followers of Jesus, we are a people who in baptism have died, been buried, and brought back to life with Christ. Many of us doing so, making the very same confession as Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This ought to remind us that baptism is but the beginning of a new life of continued beginnings, to emerge from that cocoon, only to remain trapped in patterns of avoidance and fear is soul-destroying. We must make space together for suffering. We must continue living death and resurrection as the continual pattern and rhythm of our whole life, constantly taking up our cross. But we are always on the way, struggling together with the help of the Holy Spirit to shoulder and to transform the suffering of our own and of others into new life. Join me in prayer. Messiah of God and Son of Man, as we journey with you together, open our hearts as you did yours to the suffering of the world. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Amen.